Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So this episode is sponsored by the Coconuts Collaborative and I'm joined by my good friend Ramesh Ranganathan and we're going to try some of the products together. Yeah. Yes, we are. So we're going to try some of the uh, natural coconut collaborative yogurt, which is completely dairy-free, 100% vegan. In fact, yeah. Have you tried it already? Hold on a second. <laughs> I opened it this morning. I had breakfast. Oh, did you? <laughs> okay. The other night I was watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Do you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine? One of my favourite shows. Right. So Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, Terry on Brooklyn Nine-Nine loves yogurt. Right, he's always going about Terry loves yogurt. Yeah, and then I thought, oh man, I haven't eaten yogurt for like I don't know, maybe seven years. I'm about to eat yogurt for the first time in I think, <laughs> I think seven years. So, so I'm going to be able to tell you uh, what I've not tasted it yet. Louis absolutely, Louis practically finished his. So, pressure's pressure. I mean, it's on. delightful. It's absolutely delightful. Just can't go That's wrong. Good. That is good. That is good stuff. So my mum told me to do an overnight oats, which I've never eaten before myself either. And that's what I did last night for breakfast today. And it was like yeah. half oats, half yogurt and a bit of almond milk. And oh my God, it really hit the spot. Hold on. Did you just do oats, yogurt and almond milk? Yeah, that was it. You didn't put any fruit in there? No, I put the fruit in the, in, in the morning, some banana. Okay. It's just that if you're going to tell people how to make stuff, you need to, you need to <laughs> say all the stuff. That is great, man. Mm. I love that. I'm a big fan of that yogurt. That's um, and that's I mean, look, I, 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 yes, 100% different. I mean, look, look um, I know that if you're listening to this, you're thinking, well, these pricks have to say this because <laughs> they've been sent it. But I, I, I'm being honest, it's really nice. This episode is sponsored by the Coconut Collaborative. The one with the tree and the people on the packaging? Yeah, that one. Hello and welcome to this next episode of Headstrong Season 4. You're listening with me, Louis Strong, and this is Headstrong, the podcast. Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with a variety of individuals in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and their careers and their journeys. But ultimately, I want to talk to them about their vulnerabilities and where they may have struggled to inspire you, the listener, and to get you to understand what it means to be headstrong. And to me, headstrong means to believe in yourself, to talk about your vulnerabilities and reinforce your self-worth. Now, as I said, this is the fourth series today and we have had some incredible guests on. But today's guest is extremely special indeed. And his name is Ramesh Ranganathan. Ramesh is a much-loved comedian all across the UK for his multiple TV appearances on shows such as A League of Their Own with Freddie Flintoff and Jamie Redknapp, and also for his huge sellout tours on his stand-up comedy. 
But to get to where he is today, Ramesh has had an intriguing and fascinating journey that will most definitely inspire you and interest you. Ramesh is also an advocate for mental health and it's really important to have an individual like Ramesh engaging with such an interesting and necessary topic, particularly at this stage in 2021. I really, really hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, feel free to like and subscribe and share it with as many people as you possibly can. Enjoy the episode. Brilliant. Ramesh, thank you so much for joining me here on Headstrong. I mean, I know, as we've just said, that you're a hugely busy man and I've indeed been pestering you for some time to get you onto the show. So thanks so much for coming on. No worries. I mean, uh, I guess I, I sort of have to apologize because I am, well, you know, I'm sure you'd be polite about it, but I'm not good at being got hold of or responding or maintaining lines of communication. So uh, I don't know how that fits in with the headstrong ethic, but uh, it's bad, isn't it? Well, here we are, though. Hey, it's it's paid off, I hope. <laughs> well, because I, I was listening to a podcast um, with you probably a few weeks ago, and I hadn't heard from you yeah. for some time. And I was like, I'm going to have to just live by what you the story you told. And there was this kid from school that you were teaching. And you were like, oh, I'll help you out. No worries. And then he texted you and you ghosted him. It's really bad because he, 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 I, I wanted to help. I do want to help. And I did want to come on the podcast. But it's just like, I'll get a text and I think, I'm on my way somewhere here. I'll, I'll reply to that when I can properly, like, you know, focus on it and, d- and do it in the right way. And then I just don't. Do you know what I mean? And so <laughs> it looks like it's actually, it comes from a place of, of wanting to be more considerate. But actually what happens is you're less considerate as a result, you know? <laughs> you completely stumble over yourself. But I mean, so I saw yeah. your show in Basingstoke some time ago. And then I met you at, um, when I was working for Jack Whitehall at, the, at his stand-up yes. tour. And I remember yeah. when I first met you and I was talking about the Basingstoke show. And of course, you weren't that complimentary of said location. Well, Basingstoke is, you know, it's lovely. Uh, Lewis, you know, that's what I said to you. I raved about it. Um, <laughs> I remember, I don't know which, because I, I did a couple of nights there, but the, there was one in particular. I don't know if it's the one you were at. The crowd was just so hard to get like, oh, really? going. Do you know what I mean? You just have, you just have some like that and I don't know you have to slightly get out of your head a bit because sometimes the audience because you know because obviously you're doing the same show you know from doing Jack's tour you're you're doing the same show at different places and you get different responses on different nights but the audience don't know that they're responding differently to any other audience so you have to kind of um switch yourself off from that a little bit I think it's it's not uh you have to just go this is his this is how it is do you know what I mean but um I remember one of the basing stakes being really tough how long ago does that seem, those live performances? When was the last time uh, you actually did a live show in front of people? Well, I think the last time was, I actually did, I think, just in between the lo- lockdown one and two, uh, <laughs> I did one in, there's a theatre just down the road from me here, the Hawth, and they've got like a, an outdoor amphitheatre thing. And so we did a show there because at that time it wasn't clear uh what the government funding was going to be for theater spaces and for the arts and stuff and so i I just thought it'd be a nice thing to put on a little comedy night there give some comedians some money because obviously comedians are you know comedians are struggling um and uh as is everyone i'm not saying comedians are struggling the most guys don't at me and uh so i thought it'd be a good thing to do and it was so i did we did it outside it wasn't the same um you know i've been doing a lot of like zoom gigs which is like, you know, it's essentially like the chat we're having now. Uh, but it just, I mean, I don't know why I explained that, but it, it, so it's just like <laughs> that. But it, it just, stand-up is such a false kind of premise that like when I did Zoom gigs, it's just like, I just, I'm just screaming at my laptop. It's, it's, it seems really weird, do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, but, but, you know, in terms of actually touring, touring, Mate, that I mean, that Basingstoke gig, for example, that feels like an eternity ago, man. Like, I, 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 it's so well. The world has changed crazy. since then. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you know, I uh, got. I mean, you know, I, I'm hoping, I'm itching to get back and start doing that. Um, well, you've again, got a tour lined so we'll up, see. actually. So fingers crossed. Yeah. That, you know, we can ride the wave yeah. out um, and get round to that. Yes. Yeah. 
I mean, but since since we locked down at the beginning or end of March and then through into this lockdown 2.0, I mean, you're no stranger to hard work. You literally just want to be kept busy, right? So what is that motivation that makes you want to be busy? Um, I don't know. I'm actually, I, I am actually inherently very lazy. Uh, so, uh, but I do really... Um, like what I do I've been sort of lucky enough to 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 find a thing that I really enjoy doing so my uh sort of the because the perception is that I've got a really intense work ethic and and I do I am working all the time but it never feels like work really you know like I, I do feel like I do feel tired when I have to if I've like finished a late night and I've got to get up early to do filming I do get I do get exhausted but I never it doesn't feel like a slog really it just feels like because I really do like what I'm doing. So it's the old cliche of, you know, if you find something, is it, if you find something that you love, you'll never work a day in your life or whatever. That's kind of what it feels like. But the truth is, mate, is that with comedy and anything like that, you never really feel like you've mastered it. So I, 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 whenever I'm not doing something, I think I, I could be working on something or I could be doing something because I'm not as good as I want to be. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm happy and I'm, I feel very lucky to have got where I've got in, in comedy, but I'm not as good as I want to be. There's certain things I haven't done that I'd like to do. And so until I've done those, I feel like I can't really rest. You know, until I've got to be as good a stand-up as I want to be, I can't chill out. Until I've done the things I want to do, I can't really relax. You know, so, um, But at the same time, I never really stress about it. It's not like a... I'm focused on like, I want to get better. I want to get better, but I don't, it doesn't cause me high blood pressure or anything like that. You know, I really do love what I do. So keeping busy has got nothing to do with Lisa or the kids, does it? Well, you know that, to be honest (laughs) with you, mate, it's funny you say that it's, it's more to, I think they would, they like when we did the first lockdown, just before the first lockdown, I'd be doing a lot of travel shows. Yeah. And so the, the, they'd been getting used to me being away for like maybe two, three weeks at a time. And then when I came back and we were doing lockdown, when we were in lockdown, I think they were like really excited about spending time with me. The novelty of that wore off pretty quick. I reckon my, I reckon my wife was like contacting the BBC to go, do you want to send, is there any way that we can get him on another one? Like what's going on now? <laughs> So, um, it, do you know what though? It's, a, it's a, I know you're kind of like it's a genuine, it's genuinely something that everyone's had to adjust to. I think it's like seeing more of your loved ones is actually a thing you have to kind of get used. To. You know, I know it sounds mad, but like I'm so used to seeing my my wife at the end of my working day or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Or the kids. Like I do the school run and then I see them in the day, and then we had this thing where we're all like prisoners in the same house for yeah. like ages it's a new set of skills to get used to being around each other for that intense an amount of time. And uh, I think the gloss really came off me for my family as a, as a father and a husband. <laughs> so, so have you taken something from lockdown one to 2.0? Some, you know, those few months that we were allowed out, thankfully, was there something that you took yeah. from the first to the second? Well, I think that, um, I think that um, we kind of decided that, sitting around and you know if I was in a position where I couldn't do work th- with the kids sitting around and doing nothing just isn't an option for children of that we've the children we've got of their ages like 11 9 and 6 it's a lot and of so energy. actually it's a lot of energy man so we actually do you know so we've, we've got loads of stuff that we actually do do you know I mean? we kind of structure the time if we can um and that's something that we learned during the first lockdown it seems lovely if it was just Lisa and myself you know, sitting on our asses doing nothing, I could do that endlessly. Do you know what I mean? Whereas <laughs> the ki- the kids just wouldn't accept that. So we've 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 kind of we've tried to be a bit more smart about it. Well, as you say, it's so incredibly tough on children, like because they can't actually quite fully understand really what's going on. They're not going to school. They're not really sure what this COVID thing is. And there you are, like spending a lot of time at home and not going out working the, all the time as much as you probably want to. Yeah. And then you're, you know, you come in and you're teaching their English lesson. You're like, oh Christ, what's going on? I know, I know. And and you are kind of conscious of the fact that they are probably experiencing stress. You know, because everything has changed for them. They're seeing their parents wearing face masks when they go out. 
you know, they're not allowed to do all of the stuff. You know, there is an anxiety that comes along with that. And so when it came to the homeschooling, we were conscious of the fact that, first of all, whatever they missed, they're probably going to catch up. It's fine. It's going to be all right. And also there's a bit of, there's a bit of just uh, anxiety management that you have to do that's probably more important than making sure they're up to speed with their maths. Do you know what I mean? I think it's that thing of, you know, they are going through something and we have to be mindful of that. Do you know what I mean? So we tried to keep them as chilled out as possible. Yeah, managing that emotional well-being is probably far more important than you reviving your maths career. Exactly. And and as it turns out, Louis, I... I uh, I, I don't have the skills anymore. I mean, I, 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 I'm an incredibly frustrated master teacher. And that's not years. my opinion. That, yeah, there's there's three reviewers in this house that would that would testify. To that. <laughs> I mean, naturally, your upbringing, though, is of course starkly different to that of what your children are now experiencing. Uh, I, I would perhaps suggest you were you were born in Crawley, but of Sri Lankan descent, and your your parents came over from Sri Lanka, and. When they came, did they have a set plan for Jonathan? What was their what was their aim? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, even Jonathan, even giving me the name Jonathan was part of a plan, I suppose. Not not a, an effective one, but it was part of the plan. <laughs> I think like my 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 mum and dad had very different attitudes. Like so, you know, my they were very conscious of giving us the best possible start they could do. And and my parents are uh you know they are if you think about what the stereotype of asian parents is which is you know super academic and son's got to be a doctor and all of that kind of stuff you know they weren't they weren't quite like that they they were very much like you know it was assumed that you were going to study i was going to go to university that's not an optional thing you you know obviously if i'd have said that i didn't want to do it they wouldn't have forced me, but you know, it was very much like expected that you're going to do that. Um, but my dad and mum had slightly different attitudes towards it. My mum was very much like, she wanted me to get all A's, become a doctor, you know, do all of that. And I don't think that's because of a pride thing or, or uh, she wanted to show off to the community or anything like that. I think it came from like a, not a good place, which is that she wanted us to do the best that we possibly could do. And to her mind, you know, in, in in Sri Lankan culture, being a doctor is the most revered job that you can do, you know, healing people. Um, and so that's what she wanted for her son. Whereas my dad was a bit more chilled out than that. My dad was, you know, my dad had very different attitudes. My dad was somebody that, you know, he worked in finance. He took over a, a book export company from being their finance director. He then used to go to a pub at lunchtimes, realised that he preferred being at the pub than the export place. So he sold the export place <laughs> and bought the pub. So, you know, he, he he came at it from a very different kind of angle. And so he's very much like, whatever you want to do, but whatever you choose to do, like, absolutely do it the best you can. You know, that, that was what he was like. So there was a bit of mediating from him. I remember when I, when I started doing my A-levels, I chose A-levels that would enable me to do medicine, even though... I didn't want to do medicine <laughs> and, um, and I wasn't, I wasn't academically smart enough to do medicine. And so I remember like doing the, I did the first week of like all the sciences and stuff. And I thought, fucking hell, I can't do it. Like, I hate this. Do you know what I mean, like this is, so then I went and changed my A-levels like over after the first week to stuff I really wanted to do. Great. And then I had to come home and tell my mum and, um, she was really upset, like really, really upset. And, I, and, and my dad sort of had to chat to her about it. But the truth is she was right to be worried because I really did, I did, I did dick about quite badly and I ended up like not doing very well. But, um, but yeah, but it, so they, that, I think that there wasn't really a concrete plan, but I think they were very much like, they always wanted us to, to, do, to, to achieve, you know, it's very much all the, all the traditional yeah, all the sure. traditional old-fashioned signifiers of success you get your house sorted out get a, you know get your car sorted out, get your family you know all of that kind of stuff um they're very concerned about all that yeah absolutely i mean looking back a little bit earlier than your a levels and maybe when you're a little bit younger you've previously talked about those uh years of your life as character forming that's like a quote that you've used before because of your physical appearance and when you were growing up you were 
I don't know. I mean, you will probably describe it better. And I've read it in your book and, and in interviews that you're a little larger than you are now. Um, yeah, I was, uh, yeah. How do you reflect on that and that period at school, you know, with self-reflection now? Well, I had a kind of, uh, you know, I was, a, I was, a, I know that we talk about now, we talk about uh, like, you know, body shaming and how it shouldn't happen and fat shaming and et cetera, et cetera. And I talk to my children about it. You know, I try and get an insight to what their school experience is like. And I know that it's better. But when I was at school, you know, being a fat kid with a lazy eye wasn't, it's just horrible. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you're just sort of an, out, you know, an outsider in many ways because like, people don't see you as a cool kid to hang out with if you're fat. You know, if, you've got a, if you look a bit funny, they're sort of not, you know, you get the piss taken out of you. And so you, it gives you an outsider status, I think. And in that way, I, I ended up uh, doing a lot of attempted people pleasing, you know, and, and, <laughs> uh, and that might, you know, that was part of that was sort of humor. You know, I would sort of, I, I, sort of, I would say that my, my comedy was forged in sort of the heat of kind of being bullied or being a bit of an outsider at school. But in, in addition to that, there was a lot of pretending I was into certain stuff that I thought that I was supposed to be into, you know, whether that be music or the clothes I was wearing and stuff like that. And you don't feel, you know, when you're that age, it's very much about identity and, and, and people's, the world's impression of you is so important to you. And so I struggled a lot with that. And then also when my parents went through financial difficulties, because I was the early part of my education, I was at private school. And then um, my parents fell on really hard times and then I ended up going to the local comp. And, um, and then there was, you have that added sort of outsider status there where I've sort of come in late on as a new kid from a, from a very different type of school. And so there was all that. And I think that that kind of, uh, that kind of shapes how you are. I do, I do think, you know, had, had my family not gone through what they'd gone through, had we not changed schools, had I... Uh, had they had I not spent time in like a council bed and breakfast, and my dad had not gone to prison and all that, I don't, I just don't think I would have been a comedian because I was just following a much more sort of orthodox path of like you know I go to this decent school. I was at, and by the way, I'm not saying my comprehensive was an excellent school. I ended up teaching there, you know. So yeah. I, I re, and my and my eldest son goes there now. So like you know, I, I do <laughs> think that school is great. But like I went, I went from, I went from you know, that change of trajectory and seeing my dad really struggle as a result of his chase for, for material wealth because he wanted to provide for his family, that, that makes you sort of rethink your objective, do you know what I mean? And you sort of think, well, I don't think earning and, you know, these traditional paths are necessarily the be-all and end-all and, you know, it kind of reframed my thinking about all that. Yeah, I've seen it a lot myself because I, I work with a, a great charity called Bullies Out um, per, from personal experience. And I just think that they do some great work. And as you say, I think quite often an individual that does experience bullying personifies their own persona to an extent that they're an exaggerated version of themselves. Actually, much like some comedians, they get on stage and they come off and they're actually a lot more reserved than what you assume them to be. And that's sure. what, uh, as well as the challenge of, you know, others who get bullied completely go inwards. So were you, would you say yeah. you're more of the former? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess, I, I guess I'm sort of, I mean, a lot of people, I think in a way sort of stand up, because when I first started doing stand up, for example, <clears throat> people would say to me, you're a lot firmer and sort of out there and a, bit, and a lot more honest on stage. And mm. is that a persona? Uh, you know, that your persona on stage is slightly different. And I don't think that is my persona. I think that might be what I want to be. And I think the persona is when I'm off stage, you know, because you're sort of, you're sort of putting a filter on of, of being polite, not being, I wouldn't not be polite, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, that sort of, you're sort of checking yourself and in a way that I just don't feel like I have to on stage. And so, um, yeah, I think you do, you do sort of, uh, you do sort of go within yourself a little bit. I do think that's true. I think from school, I want to say that you liked it somewhat enough, as you say there, that you ended up going back to teach at your school. But I want to know, and I don't know if anyone's asked you this, how were you cherry picked at an airport? 
to be on this teacher training program. I mean, what a strange place to go. Yeah, you could be a teacher. I think it's a very odd place to happen. <laughs> I, know, I, know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's weird, isn't it? I just got picked up. I just had this vibe, I guess. Because <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was, I was doing a job that I really didn't like. And actually, you know, I, I, do, I do really feel strongly about education. And my wife, my wife is about, you know, used to be a teacher as well. We're both, we're both very passionate about education and, and teaching as a thing and, and, and actually teacher welfare and, and the job they do. But um, uh, actually part of the drivers towards me, to me becoming a teacher was that I had a really, what I considered at the time to be a terrible teacher. And this is at the private school. That I, was at. I, I had a, a maths teacher who, and I, I, I'm sure now on reflection, I, I didn't, um, he wasn't picking on me, but it felt like he was at the time. And I really felt like he didn't like me. And that's actually the death knell for, a, obviously a death knell for a relationship between a teacher and, their, and, a, and a student. Mm. If, 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 a, if a, one of the things that I got trained to taught when I was teaching to be a, training to be a teacher was that, that a, a student will accept anything from you in terms of punishment, bollockings, whatever you want to call it, as long as they have an underlying belief that you like them and want the best for them. And if they believe that, they will, take, they will accept anything, right? And, and I did find that to be true. And there's little ways that you can convey that to children, like, you know, in your language, for example. Like, for example, if, if somebody's pissing about in your class, you don't say to them, you're ruining my lesson. You say, your behaviour is ruining the lesson. You, you, you separate them from their behavior you know it's a little simple thing i mean you'd never say ruining the le- but you know you, you know what i mean and so yeah. um yeah and so i um and so that teacher made me feel so bad about going to maths lessons that i started pretending to be ill to to to, to not go to his lessons and like and when i had a, when i had a maths lesson coming up i'd start to like i went to the i'd go to the medical wing and say i feel really sick or whatever and started taking days off when i had maths and obviously maths lessons come up quite frequently because it's a core subject so i i started missing a bit of school but um but yeah so um but going into but but yeah i got i got i got told to, to i should have a go at teaching and i was really hating my job and um one of the things that happened is that i um I started. I started regularly crying in the toilet at my workplace. This is uh, this in the airport. Sounds really bleak. This is like I was working at for an airline caterers actually. Yeah, so I, I I was doing this job where I was um I was I was doing airline costings, and it was a really stressful job, and I wasn't really enjoying it. And um, I remember one day I was doing something, and I was working towards a really tight deadline, and I felt really stressed, and I got up and I went to the toilet. And I just sat in one of the cubicles and like started crying with like this. I think it was partly the stress of the job and also the fact that I kind of sort of thought that okay, this is this is adult life now is 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 what I'm doing now. Mm. I was finding it really hard, and so and then I finished crying and I came back and I sat at my desk and I felt loads better. Like I I I, I sat down and I got on with my work and I felt like I've. You know, in the, in the same way that many people, like I pressed a reset button on my stress, right? And then for, for a bit, I just started every now and again, just going and crying in the toilet and like coming back. Not like, I didn't go like six times a day, like maybe like <laughs> once every once every few weeks, I'd go to the toilet and have a cry. And then I realized that this is probably not uh, a long-term, this is not long viable in the long term to live like this. So... Yeah. So um, I got I, I got told about this teaching scheme, which is a graduate teacher program where you could you could ch- sort of train on the job. And so I thought I've got to, I've, I've got to go and do this. And so I think I phoned up the school. I had an interview the next day. Uh, I got accepted straight away, and then I came back to work the day after that and told them I was quitting. So great! It was uh, yeah, it was a big change. Yeah, I mean, I've, um, since COVID, I've been starting doing some stuff in school purely because work's a little bit thin on the ground. And I'm, I'm sure. just, I'm really enjoying just learn every day being a new experience, everything. Cause I can imagine that the, the office, not the office job, but working from a desk, it was becoming a little bit monotonous as well as the stress building up, sat in the same chair day on day. But at least when you're teaching and stuff, whilst you still do get stressed, you can go and, talk about it in the staff room for 20 minutes and you know have yeah. a little 
you know, get the stress off your chest, I suppose. But it's difficult um, isolating these, these kind of careers differently and coping with stress. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a weird one because, like, that job that I did, the airline catering job, was not a bad job. It was a great job. I just didn't like it. You know, and there were people that were, that were there that, you know, the way that you describe being in an office and doing that, that sort of thing, they would love that. But it just wasn't for me. And then the thing about teaching, you probably know now from your time in uh, working in a school, is that um, you can prepare a lesson but you can't prepare for how your kids are going to behave. Do you know what I mean? So every day is completely different. And you can, and, and also I'd have more than one class in the same year group. And so you'd have the same lesson prepared because you're trying to get them through the same curriculum. The way that they would respond to the same lesson plan is so different. And so every day was completely different. And I remember one other thing, because teaching is very stressful, you know, not, and not because, which just because, you you know it it's a you know it's a it's such a high level of you know you're performing for five hours mm. or more every day with completely unpredictable audience you're marking you've got all of these other things that you've got it's very very hard and so one of the things that I remember somebody told me and it's funny you, you that you mentioned the staff room one of the things that people said to me is when a lesson goes really shit your instinct is to go to the car park and sit in your car and you know just mope about it so it's absolutely the worst thing you can do yeah go into the staff room go into the staff room tell somebody one of the other teachers about how your lesson went and then listen to them tell you about seven lessons they've had that went much worse than that (laughs) it's it's like it's so much that that thing of that you know that that was that was something i learned really early on that that to you know however bad it's going you just go in and go you will not believe this i tried to do this thing I ended up screaming at them because I just lost my shit. And then I gave them a test. It was horrendous. And they go, mate, like, you know, that was at least they stayed in their chairs, you know, whatever, you know, there'd be, there'd be so many like different uh, story points. So yeah, that was something I learned very early on. This episode is sponsored by the Coconut Collaborative. Every one of their chalky pots is just delicious but they do loads of other products from natural yogurt custard rice puddings you name it and they are all 100% vegan and they're free from dairy but not temptation this is actually amazing for me i'll tell you well so first of all let me just say so i know this company very well because whenever um whenever like they do me like a little selection of vegan snacks if i'm doing a job or whatever they always put um coconut collaborative uh, chop pots in the fridge for me and i absolutely love them it's really all right nice. well we better dive into um, the chocolate pots the chocolate pots i got sent all three flavors and i'm not going to lie to you i love the normal chocolate ones i have never tried a salted caramel one before or a banoffee one and that is unreal so um my kids ate the salted the salted caramel one and i got a thumbs up from them and then afterwards i told them it was vegan uh, and they didn't know. So there you go. That's the ultimate test, isn't it? Now, I've had, I reckon I've eaten, I don't know how many of these chocolate pots I've eaten, but they are the business. I'm a big fan. They are the bomb. Mm. I don't, if I can make a criticism, why, why do they have to be in such tiny parts? Portion control. Yeah, but I don't give a shit about that. You, you know, like, um, you know, I, I keep, it, it turns me into like a little, I, I keep trying to dig the spoon into the little crevices mm. in the pot to, to get as much as I can out. I don't want to be, I don't want to be that person. Can can I just make a request? Can they do uh, large chocolate pots for people that don't care about longevity of life? The Romesh pot. Yeah. Just sort of, I'd love yeah. that. I'm going to move on to it's another great. pot. <laughs> Go for Seconds. It. You're having a second pot. See, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about those isolated issues in your, in your childhood and then in, into uh, your work, working uh, as a teacher as well. But then looking back uh, upon reflection on what we, we lightly touched on, the financial difficulties that your father found himself in, and, and I'm sure most people who are listening will have a, some sort of knowledge of what, of what happened. But mm. he, he found himself um, in prison. How, how did this hit you? And what age was this at for you? 
So he went to prison uh, when I was about 13, 14. So it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a mad story, actually, because um, my dad had been seeing another woman behind my mum's back, right? So he'd been having a relationship with this other woman. And so my, whenever my dad wasn't around, my mum was sort of assuming that he was at this other woman's house. And I think that at that time, he was thinking about, you know, I think he was thinking about leaving the family to go and live with this woman. So anyway, at one point, he, he was coming to visit us every day or every other day or whatever. And he hadn't been for a while. And my mum said, uh, like, um, I want you to go around and <laughs> knock on this woman's door to see where dad is, right? So I was like, f- like, so I was like, of course, because like my mum was like so stressed out. It was such a horrible thing. But it was such a dark, you know, it's so horrendous. So she takes me around to this woman's house and I go and knock on the door and uh, I said, where's my dad? And she said, he's been arrested. And that's when we found out that he had gone to, my dad was unbeknownst to us doing some kind of import deal that he was going to make a big commission. It wasn't drugs or anything. It was like a, it was like, I think it was like, I, I never really talked to him about it, but it was like he was importing some goods without it going through the proper channels or whatever. And it's quite a big, it was quite a big thing. And um, he got done for it. And so he got arrested and he was in prison in Leicester, which is where he got arrested, he was being held in Leicester. Um, and then he ended up being in um, Arundel, Ford Prison for like, uh, well, he was sentenced to two years. Um, he ended up doing like 15 months or something like that. But, um, but um, yeah, it was, it was a really, uh, it, it was a weird one because... Obviously, going to see your dad in prison is uh, is a uh, is a horrible thing. You know, you go through a phase when you're younger, you think your parents are infallible. So, I've seen my dad be horrible to my mum and then go to prison. You know, it's all that shit. So, you know, this hero of yours is like you're seeing all of these things happen. It's it, it's really difficult for me to. I was very close to my dad, and by the time he passed away, I was cl- I was very close to him again. But it did some real damage to our relationship. At those formative um, years of 13, 14, when he did go to prison. Yeah. I mean, that, those, as I say, those are quite formative years and you visited him every Sunday, right? Is that period of your, yeah. of that, that period of your life there, are those vi- memories quite vivid or have you become quite desensitized to the, uh, the concept and thought of that? No, I remember it really vividly. Like, you know, we, we'd go there, we'd turn up, you'd go through what was like an airport security bit to go in and, you know, you, there'd be like, you know, there'd be a big room where every, all the prisoners were, visit, were being visit, receiving visits. <clears throat> and we'd go and sit down and talk to our dad. I can't remember exactly how long we talked to him for, but um, we'd go and see him. And um, I found out later on that there were some things that he'd gone through that, like he got beaten up once and my mum hadn't told me about it. I found out much later on. Um, but in a way, it was kind of... Uh, it was a healing thing as well because my mum and dad started to reconcile while he was in prison. And I think that being in prison led him to kind of reflect on what he'd done up to that point. And so when he came out, my mum and I, my mum and he decided to get back together and he came back and and was living with us. And to be honest with you, I think he spent the rest of his life trying to make up for, for what he'd done during that period because he, you know, he wanted to put my mum in a nice house. He, wanted to do right by my brother and I because he felt like he'd let us down so badly. And so it's kind of sad in a way because like by the time he passed away, like I don't think he really felt like he'd done that. But he had, he had done. He'd, you know, I, I, he'd, he had nothing to worry about, but um, he did. I mean, I can only imagine the, the I don't know, that these experiences were kind of helped probably shape who you are to an, you know, to a great extent today as well. How much has this inspired you yourself and how you have navigated your own life in the, in, a, in its personal sense, not the professional sense? Yeah. Uh, I think that, um, I, I, I think that, you know, my first reaction was when my dad went for all of that is I think, I, I think to myself, I don't want to be like my dad. I'm very much like my dad in terms of, mm. Uh, he he was shit to get hold of as well. Like, say, so like, <laughs> he was. He, he's a lot like me, like kind of quite. Uh, you know, he had a similar sense of humour to me. I look a lot like him. You know, there's all these things that we have in common. But I, I, I you know, you sort of think, well, I don't want to conduct myself in a relation in relationships like that. I don't want to. 
my dad, my, my dad was a, you know, if you took a side, took to put to one side, <clears throat> excuse me, if you put to one side, um, you know, the fact that he went through his financial difficulties and, 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 and him cheating on my mum, my experience of my dad was a good one. You know, he, he set me up with some good life lessons and he was a very loving dad. And I, I be honest with you, I sort of forgot about that when we went through what we went through because, you know, you just sort of, I, 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 some, dis, some distance came there. And, and then when I had my first child, I saw my dad with my kid and how loving my dad was to his grandson. And it reminded me of, I thought, yeah, that my dad, like, is, he's such, it almost, not that I needed, it almost reminded me of how much of a great dad my dad had been to me. But it was very much like this, you know, you know this self-belief, do, you know, do whatever you do to the best of your abilities. But also, my dad, my, my dad taught me a lot about sort of enjoying life, do you know what I mean? And I know that he enjoyed it a little bit too much. But, you know, in terms of kind of, I do think that's part of, I do think that's part of it. We get so caught up with, and I'm guilty of it still, we get so caught up with chasing a target or chasing a goal or you want to achieve this in your career. Actually, you need to just sort of stop and smell the roses sometimes. I mean, otherwise, what's the point of doing all this? You know what I mean? And so um, I think that's something that I got from my dad, definitely. And a lot of all these, a lot of these personal experiences uh, in your life, both from family, uh, but also personal, have led you to do some amazing work with the charity Calm. So how did, how did that first come about? Obviously, you probably wouldn't have had the opportunity without your career, but how did that come about as um, becoming an ambassador and the work that you do? So it's, yeah, well, it just, um, it came about from quite a sad thing, actually, is that one of my friends, um, one of my friends uh, who I used to teach with, he um, he had a bit of a, a problem at, at work and he ended up uh, having to leave teaching. It was, um, he had some sort of employee tribunal, he had to leave teaching and he went for a really tough time. And at that time, when he's going for that really tough time, um, we all, you know, we were t- all of his friends and I wasn't his closest friends, but I was, I was a really good friend. I, he was a good friend of mine. We would like, we supported him and did all the things that, that we, you know, we didn't, weren't doing it out of a sense of duty. Everybody was worried about him. And then it felt like he'd come through it. And um, I remember going for dinner for, with him once and uh, uh, he was in good spirits. He's talking about setting up a YouTube channel about becoming a, like a, a life coach of sorts. And he was, he was very excited about that. Or it felt, at least it felt like he was. And then two weeks later, I was doing a travel show and I found out that, he, that he'd taken his own life. And I remember thinking, I really thought he was out of the woods. And I, and I, and I, was, in, I was in Ethiopia at the time doing this travel show and I phoned one of his very best friends and we talked to for ages about what the hell was going on. And, um, and it occurred to me that, well, first of all, I actually selfishly, because you sort of tend to, there's a human nature it's human nature's kind of slightly make these things about yourself but i kind of was like fuck man have i let him down as a friend or could i have done more and blah blah and it wasn't about me at all but you know you you sort of think to yourself shit could i've done more anyway the long and the short of that is you know i've always been uh you know and i've had my own sort of mental health struggles yeah and that sort of brought it home to me that actually this needs to be this needs to be put higher up on the on the list of priorities for everybody and and talking and 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 for men to be in, for men to be talking about their feelings and et cetera et cetera and so I became aware of calm's work and everything that calm do exactly chimed with the sort of thing that I wanted to be doing and so i I asked to become an ambassador for them um and you know uh it's an ongoing process you know I wouldn't say my role is an i don't wouldn't say that i've uh, perfected my role as an ambassador. I mean, I'm trying to publicize them as much as possible and I've been able to do that. And we've done like fun, like fundraising things for them. I did like a hip hop save my life club night before the, before all of this uh, lockdown stuff happened and we, all the money we raised went to Carmen. So we do stuff like that. I do think that I'd like to figure out more sophisticated ways of, um, of supporting them and, and, and getting the word out. So that's something that we're kind of, that's an ongoing process, but it's something I feel really passionate about. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, I've got to say from, from a personal perspective, when I, I can't remember at what point it was in your career that you became a calm ambassador. As soon as I found out my, my, my respect for you skyrocketed, like obviously coming from me, that's not a lot, but I mean, honestly, it was like, it was great to see someone using their platform for something so beneficial and so worthwhile. And in fact, actually I, um, <laughs> I don't know why I was just clearly must be bored in like lockdown or something. I just bought like a load of face masks with headstrong on them. So I'm selling those and raising money for calm as well. Oh, amazing. Oh, brilliant. That's great, man. Oh, thank yeah. you for saying that. That's wicked. So yes, go check it out guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you also mentioned there that you, you suffered yourself from, from depression and from mental health issues. I don't want to, I don't mm. want to kind of, Kev, touch touch on that too much but i want to touch on the kind of the support network and the bubble that you you, you maybe lent on was it, how, how important was your family at that time for help advice and support or we, did you feel like you were isolated uh well the, the 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 truth is the first time i became aware of having mental health not problems but like that that you know i needed some help or i needed to do something about it was when i was at uni actually i was about 1718 and I came I remember the specific story is that my family my my mum had uh had a we had a a, a a a Sri Lankan friend over who who hadn't got a place to stay so he was staying with our family for a bit and he we were sharing a bedroom at that time right and and I was away at uni and I had um I had got like a a hi-fi in my in my room in the days when we had hi-fis like that right so i had a little hi-fi in my room and i came back and it had been moved from where it was to somewhere else and i like flipped out like lost my shit i remember feeling like this was a sign that my mum didn't love me or some shit like it was really like a disproportionate reaction and i remember when that finished i thought or when i fin- you know when i sort of reflected back on that i thought i'm not right here like this is that was not that was not uh, it didn't merit that re- response from me. I've obviously got some something going on, and so I went to see a therapist at uni. And luckily, the uni, you know, where I was at uni, they had like they had help in that regard. And that's something that I've had, you know, going on through my life. I've sort of been aware of of those situations. But I think actually, um, and and when it when it happened at seventeen, I I didn't tell my mum and dad about it uh, because. Um, I felt like I was a little bit stigmatized back then in a way that it probably isn't now, but particularly in Asian culture, going to see a counselor or a psychologist or a therapist or whatever you want to call it. You know, my, my mum would freak out, you know, she'd just think what, 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 like, what's wrong with you? Have you got like a mental problem or are you going crazy? You know, like the language associated with it was so different. And so I didn't tell them about it, but now I talk to my mum openly about it. I mean, you know, thankfully, I feel much, I have much better coping strategies and I'm much more across it than I used to be. Um, but it's something that, and, and actually I've got to be honest with you, my wife has been really great in terms of, um, you know, I realised that actually, you know, I, she, she, I, remember her, I remember her saying to me, you can just talk to me about this if you want. Not, she wasn't saying that instead of therapy because, you know, feel free to talk to me because I was sort of worried about being boring I'm just talking about some bullshit that she doesn't want to hear about. But actually, I, f- I found her. I found that really helpful. And actually, my my friends, my male friends, who in the past uh, I probably wouldn't have spoken to about. I think it's either we've got older or the climate's changed. But I would happily go to any one of them and talk about things in a way that possibly I, I wouldn't have felt comfortable to in the past. And I hope they would feel the same about me. So, you know, I definitely think. I feel like I've got more of a support network now than I did have. But the truth is part of the reason I didn't feel like I had a support network is because I felt slightly shy of talking about it, you know? And I think hopefully, as you say as well, with all the hard work that you're doing with your platform and, and the work that all these amazing charities do, it's not just Calm. There are some amazing charities out there to do with mental health that you can reach out to if you're feeling scared, you know, and you can reach out anonymously too. It's so important that the, the journey is only really just begun if we really think about it because the, the, there's so much more yeah absolutely there's so much more work to do but also in, additionally to that that kind of family um bubble and network that we see that with you and that you write about from personal experience we also see a, a lot of it in, in your career on screen as well and one that comes to mind for me is your your on-screen relationship and friendship with the boys on a league of their own which i know you were right. filming last night 
And I've always been yeah. curious, how, how, how chummy are you with those boys? Would you happily talk to them about things like that? Because, of course, I know Freddie had that fantastic documentary about bulimia and has been open about his own experiences. And I'm always wondering what that, um, what that relationship is like off-screen compared to the on-screen one we see. Um, well, you know, I, I think that when I first started going on League of Their Own as a guest... I started getting on with the boys and like, you know, you became, we became friends and obviously then when, when, when Jack left and I became a, a regular on the show, um, that friendship developed. Um, that Freddie and Jamie are two of my best friends now, you know, and, uh, um, and I see them all the time and Jay, you know, James is a, is a really good mate, but obviously by, by dint of geography, it's slightly more <laughs> difficult to, to see him as much. Yeah. Um, but, but Freddie and Jamie, it's funny, isn't it? Cause like when you think of league of their own, the reason I think, and we were talking about this when we were doing the show last night, but the reason that league of their own, uh, I think works is because we're good enough mates to say absolutely anything to each other. Yeah. And you know, it's a, it's a, in a weird way, it's a safe space because nobody's safe. If, if, if that makes sense. You know I mean, like you can, you can get, you know, there's the, nobody's going to get offended by anything anybody else is saying to each other, but at the same time. And so what that, that, but what that betrays is a real friendship where we would talk to each other, but you know, I would happily talk to any of the boys, James, uh, uh, Freddie or Jamie about any problems I was having. And I have done in the past, you know, and you know, I, I've talked to James about, for example, if I've been nervous about doing something that, you know, work-wise or whatever, James is always happy to give advice. You know, like you said, Freddie and Jamie are very in touch with that kind of, that kind of side of things. And so I would happily text Jamie and say, or Freddie and say, you know, I'm feeling a bit anxious about this or I'm a bit worried about that or how, or, or how are you feeling about this? Do you know what I mean? I think those are conversations that we'd happily have with each other. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think that's not even, you know, it's funny. I hadn't thought about it until you just asked that question. But yeah, we definitely do have that relationship. I think for a, a viewer, you know, from a personal perspective, as well as anyone, anyone in the public that watches it, I think the reason as well that A League of the Rome was so successful is because they see these, what I see, deem to be genuine friendships and, you know, something that is accessible and relatable. Because, you know, you, scale, you see a lot of these comedy shows and it's actually just somewhat scripted and also just follows a set path whereas you guys do feel comfortable to say whatever the hell you like and that is what people want to see because that is what happens in real life right yeah uh, yeah 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 absolutely and, and and also we yeah so much of what you see we haven't we didn't know it's going to happen or whatever so um so yeah it's no holds barred but i think that the only way that works is if everybody really really are friends i think if you try and fake mm. that you, I think you can sniff it out. So, um, so yeah, it's really important for that show. When, when, where's the uh, the next series? Oh, you did another road trip, didn't you? Oh no, we've done it. We're in the something got cut short because of COVID, didn't it? Yeah, we, 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 <laughs> yeah, you're not meant to know that. Um, <laughs> we're 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 in the middle of we're in the middle of doing road trip, and uh, but like yesterday we we're doing a Christmas episode. Yeah. Oh, that looked quality. Uh, so, so yeah, that was fun. In fact, that's something actually that you say. Actually, you say that you always want to keep busy, and then actually, I remember seeing on Fred's Instagram story yesterday, you guys running behind a car. But then, as soon as the car stops, you're like, "Bring up a chair was, and have a cup was, of tea as well." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was that good, mate. <laughs> I mean, but your your comedy as well is very self-deprecating, as everyone obviously knows. And you also talk about your own veganism and your personal life as well in that. Do you struggle with being branded a stereotype? Um, first of all, from your, your kind of your own experiences with veganism, but also do you find it easier as well to start the conversations about these um, things that are self-deprecating in order to avoid... Um, I don't know, I'm certainly not abuse, but you know, someone else starting the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I do think so. I mean, I think like you know, uh, you know, if you make if you make jokes about you know, for example, I talk about veganism on my latest tour show, and as you know, sorry, you, you came to the show, but like, I think that the, the the point of view that I'm coming at it from veganism is 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 that 
even though I'm vegan because, you know, that's the life choice I've chosen to make, being vegan is also flawed as a, as a lifestyle choice. And, and I think, and I think part of the, part of the, the problem that non-vegans have with vegan, it's sort of, you know, you'll remember, I don't know how much you remember the show, but it's a bit of attacking non-vegans, but also kind of admitting that vegans have like are a bit yeah. smug sometimes, you know, it's that kind of combination of things where I think that, I think that being self-deprecating or, or yeah, I, I, I think that I'm, I, I talk about whatever I want to talk about and I can push things to the edge at times, but I think as long as I'm sort of the butt of the joke more often than not, then people kind of accept that. Do you know what I mean, I think if it's just me punching out everyone else, which I do do in the show, there's no doubt about that. I, I do do that. <laughs> I think that, I've, I think that, um, I think that that doesn't work if you're not kind of willing to accept your own flaws, but the vegan stuff, I mean, I was, it's good that, you know, it's interesting that you, that you focus on that from the show because that is something that puts people off because non-vegans have a real problem with vegans, you know. And um, so as soon as you start talking about it, you have a problem, actually, because people just think, oh, I don't want to hear about this, this vegan prick banging on about this. Do you know what I mean, they immediately, you've immediately got a bit of a battle. But I think... By kind of acknowledging that and talking about it, you kind of maybe break down some of the some of the preconceptions about it. Not that I've wrote that routine to break down preconceptions. I don't <laughs> care about that really. I, I, I sort of I, I sort of write about whatever I find interesting. But what you hope is that you can present a slightly different take on it. Do you know what I mean? It's it's the, the, the you know the truth is with veganism in particular. I was almost put off about by about from being becoming a vegan because of the militancy of some of it. And so you know. I do, I do get when people are a bit negative about vegans. I do understand the preconceptions. When you're on stage and stuff, this is like when you're doing your material, of course it's the same show every single night. But how often are you there and you start getting on a riff or someone in the audience when you've started, like you've, someone's heckled you and you get on a riff and stuff. How much do you, do you enjoy that kind of the improvisation side of things yourself? Or actually, do you find it a little bit worrying because you don't know what's about to come out your mouth and it could completely bomb and you could completely screw it up or it could be the, the best thing that you've ever done? Uh, I, I'm really, I, I really like doing it, you know. I, I, think that, um, I think that it's exciting for the comic and for the audience and also... You know, I want you, the show that you came to in Basingstoke, to not be replicated ever again. You know, I want that to be a unique experience. And so the only way you do that is by being live and in the moment. And so while I've got material there that, you know, you're doing for the majority of the show, if a thought pops into my head in the moment, I'll talk about that. Or if somebody says something or somebody makes a noise or whatever, I'll start riffing off that and, and I'm happy to do that. Uh, I don't think I don't think I worry about bombing. I think like when you're really in the moment, you just sort of have fun, and 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 all you know, it is more exhilarating. It is, and I think the audience get more excited because they think shit, this is not this, like he's responding yeah. to something that's happening straight away, you know, and they get very excited about that. Very excited is probably too strong a phrase, but you know, they're, they're into <laughs> it. So um, I do, I do love doing that. The the one thing that slightly changed for me is. When I did my previous tour, the one before the one you came to, I um, I did a lot of crowd work at the top, which is where I'd like ask questions of uh, and and get into stuff with the audience. And then the next year, I um was at a gig in America, and somebody started talking to me, and I fucking hated it. Like really, like they they I really hated it. And it, it was fine. Like it worked well in the room and like everyone was laughing, but I hated it. And then I thought, oh shit, I don't think I want people in my audience to feel like that. So now I tend not to do any crowd work at all. I mean, I might change my mind in the future because there's ways of doing crowd work that yeah, exactly. you celebrate people. Do you know what I mean? And, and I'm happy to do that. But um, so now if I go off, it'll be that a thought's popped into my head or something's happened in the room or if somebody heckles, then obviously I'll respond to that. But I tend not to come out and go, hey, how's it going with you? Do you know what I mean? Nice to see you. Like, I won't yeah. do any of that now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I'm kind of winding down now, but we haven't even talked about, you know, your immensely successful uh, podcast in its own right. That's going from strength to strength. And obviously you've probably got quite a lot of, you know, um, plans to expand that and continue. Do you ever want to make that into a, into something visual? 
the the short answer is no actually i mean i mean I, I kind of when we first did the podcast so that podcast hip-hop saved my life is we did it um with the with no ambition at all I, we just thought me and rupert who run it were just like we're into hip-hop it's you get surprised by what people what how many people are into hip-hop and what different types of people are into hip-hop let's do a podcast about that and so we started doing it and it started getting you know it's not massive but it started getting bigger and bigger and then we did have people approach us about turning it into a tv format and so uh, we, ha- we had a meeting about it but i've got like i looked at the stuff and i thought it was either pointless like there was it wasn't adding anything or it was changing it so much from what the podcast is i just thought i don't want to do that so the truth is that's not i don't i can't I can't see that happening in the near future. What I can see happening and what we're talking about at the moment, lockdown permitting is turning it into more of a live entity. So yes, that'd be so great. like we did, we did the club night for, um, for calm, mm. but it was such a, we had such a laugh doing that. I think that would be something that it might be, we're trying to figure out what that might look like, but it would be, I think a club night. We'd either do the podcast and do a club night or just do a club night. And it might be like, I do a tour show and then later on that night we rock up to a club in that town that we're playing in and, and do hip hop save my life there. So we're talking about that. I think that could be quite exciting. Do you know what I mean? So we'll see, but we haven't, we've got no further than having initial discussions about that at the moment. Well, if you've got any plans in the future for anything uh, like, like you did with the club night with calm and stuff, I, I'll put my hand up and happily volunteer and help out where I can. Okay. Wicked mate. We'd love you to do some break dancing or something. Sweet. I've been practicing. <laughs> lockdown's been good for something uh, <laughs> right i've got my final couple of questions that i always ask pretty much sure. every guest that comes on the first one being what piece of advice would you give to somebody trying to break into the showbiz industry uh i think my piece of advice for anybody breaking into showbiz which is probably goes against sort of what people are told is I just don't think anything is make or break. I think, you know, this whole idea that you have one chance to like do something. And if you don't do that, you're never going to make it in the thing you're trying to do. I think it's bullshit. I think it's, I think it's like, I think it's a series of, it's been persistent. It's trying and trying again. And yeah, listen, I know there's auditions and I know there's shit like that, that you can not get. But I just think that's all part of your path to doing it. I had loads of things that I fucked up. Do you know what I mean, I, I didn't make it onto shows. I had like, I, I did a, a, a pilot for a panel show where they went ahead with it with everyone except for me. You know, you know, like, so there's all those kind of things happen. None of that was make or break. Do you know what I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's a series of, it's about consistency, I think. And it's about sort of putting yourself into every single opportunity and, and seeing what happens, do you know what I mean? So yeah, um, yeah, that would. Well, be every, well, every every experience is just that. I mean, you've got to you've got to learn from that experience and not dwell on it. So that's quite fundamental. Yeah. And yeah. the final question that I ask every single guest is, what does the word headstrong mean to you? Uh, I think headstrong is. I think headstrong is about sort of uh, being aware of where your head is at. I think that's where your strength comes from, you know, is, is, is in terms of being across it, being aware of it and being able to take action, you know, cause you know, the, the misconception is that you can handle anything and you, 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 you can deal with, with whatever comes your way and you can, but you don't have to do that alone. So, you know, that might be with help or with support or whatever. That is what headstrong means to me. You know, it's about that kind of, being aware of what your state is and knowing what your support networks are if you're struggling. Amazing. Ramesh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. And thank you, man. And everything that you're doing. I've really enjoyed it. And I think hopefully people have found it interesting. <laughs> and um, they yeah, can um, fucking hope so. <laughs> and seek some inspiration. And yeah, by all means, everyone go check out Calm um, and continue your great work, Ramesh. It's, it's awesome. Cheers, mate. Thank you. You, you too. Cheers. And that wraps up this episode with Romesh on Headstrong Season 4, Episode 5. Check out the Headstrong Instagram page for a Coconut Collaborative giveaway. We're giving away a month's supply of goodies. 
Not only are the products incredible at the Coconut Collaborative, every year they work with the Per Project and local communities to help plant thousands of trees across Southeast Asia. Now, not only does this help support the fragile ecosystems that the Coconut Collaborative rely on for their tasty ingredients, but it also helps provide sustainable income for everyone involved. And over the last two months alone, they have planted a total of 5,000 trees, which is incredible. I think you might get complaints about this. I don't think people are going to hear the sounds of us eating this. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I mean, look, what I would say to you is I'm sorry. If you're one of those people that doesn't like the sound of people eating stuff, I apologise, but it's really good. But yeah, no, they're a, really, they're, they're a great company to be, uh, to be in partnership with for this episode. They're small, they're British, they're vegan, and they're trying to break, um, break down the barriers of vegan food, basically, and the misconceptions surrounding it. Yeah, I'm a, my problem with vegan food a lot of the time is is that it has this kind of, it looks vegan, do you know what I mean? And everything about it seems vegan and these, these guys haven't done that. It's, it's, you, you would happily show this to a non-vegan and they wouldn't get angry with you, which is, uh, which is great. Well, that's what I would say, everybody. Go check out the Coconut Collaborative. Delicious vegan yogurts, chockey pots, but they do things from rice puddings. Oh, mate, 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 can I just say, so the rice pudding is off the chain. (laughs) Can I just say that? I had the rice pudding. It's, mate, it's next level. It's great. I'm a big fan. The Coconut Collaborative plant-based yogurts and desserts are sold in selected Waitrose, Tesco's, Sainsbury's, Asda, Morrison's and Whole Foods stores. And that wraps us up. I want to say a huge, huge thank you to Ramesh for his generous amount of time spent on this podcast with me. It's taken us just over a year to get this episode recorded and released, but nonetheless, we have got there in the end. So a massive, massive thank you to Ramesh for speaking so passionately and kindly about his own personal experiences in life. So I really hope that you have enjoyed this episode because I think that it is truly inspiring and fascinating and I hope you have taken something away from it. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to subscribe. And as I say, share it with as many people as you deem necessary. Every listen helps on this podcast. Feel free to go back through the catalogue of Headstrong episodes with some immensely unique and interesting individuals, much like Ramesh, but with their own narrative and stories. Stay safe, stay positive and stay headstrong. 